0: my guest on talk design today is heather mckinney and heather is from austin texas and she is principal at mckinney york architecture they don't really need any introduction they do civil works religious works museums interior work They're a force to be reckoned with. They do beautiful resi work. I would suggest go and have a quick look on their website if you want a deeper dive into what they're about. They're about wonderful architecture, I can tell you that. And Heather is a delight. We've been chatting already, and we're just starting to record. Heather, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. My bona fide title these days is founder founder. And one of the reasons why I'm founder and not partner or principal is because we have now celebrated our 40th birthday and I have slowly emerged from being an owner with all of those problems. And now I just get to kind of do what I want to do, which is like I I can recommend this as the last phase of anybody's architecture career that they shed themselves of. The things that they decided that they'd had enough of, and they get to do the things that they really love to do with the people they love to do them with.
0: So the answer there would be: do it early. <laughs> Become <laughs> the <it>. founder early.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean that's. A, I mean, you get to you get to live with the buck stops here for mm-hmm. a long enough time that maybe that's no longer. As enticing as it was, the first thirty something years.
0: I suppose, in a way, it's it's a sense of giving up control of oh, some of the things as that. well. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. There's, I mean, it's a yin yang thing, right? You, for every bit of control you give up, you get freedom. Um, but it's it's like hard that. always to let go. And I would say that if you want to keep working with really creative people, their voices also need to be heard and they need to feel that control themselves, too. So our firm is, I think, perhaps the exception to the rule that we are now into second and third generation people that have been in the firm for a long time wow. who are now the leaders and are growing new leaders and so it's a it's a very organic move and many firms are started by somebody who does i mean they start the firms because they want that design control and they keep that control for the whole of the career, their career, and for the whole of the life of the firm. And when they go, the firm
0: goes, goes with, them. with them. Goes with yeah. them. Well, I think of of Australia's I suppose, most famous architect, Glenn Merkitt. Glenn mm-hmm. works on his own. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have anybody else that he works with. He does all right? his own work. He's 85 mm-hmm. or 86 years old. Mm-hmm. He has bookings for the next five years. He does one house a year. Mm-hmm. And he teaches still. Yeah. And does those things. But he doesn't he, he has total control and it finishes with him. Mm-hmm. It yeah. finishes. I
1: think it that's yeah. that's a stunning example. And
0: it's the it's I, the complete opposite, isn't it? It's like this it parallels. It yeah. Yeah.
1: It is. It's I've had I guess the very first question that I, I feel like I always get asked when somebody says, Oh, you're an architecture. You're an architect. The first question, what do you think it is?
0: What have you what have you designed or
1: what kind of architecture oh, what do kind you, of, you? Yeah. Do? yeah what right. kind? Oh, as if it's a flavor, right? What yeah, kind like of, is, oh, is, is it is that Ben and Jerry's?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, so that's the first question that i always get asked and the second question i always get asked because of my age is what what are you most proud of and you that's also it's like saying which child do you like best right (laughs) what are you most proud of but what i've learned from being asked that damn question so many times is that now because of the way my life has evolved is that i'm most proud of this firm i'm most proud that there are people that are members of this firm that love it and are nurturing it like i nurtured it and that are producing good work and to have a firm go go 40 years and beyond yeah. is a big And making good work, making consistently good work. I think that, yeah, I feel very good about that. And it's work work
0: worthy of the journey.
1: Yeah, pardon me?
0: I said the work is worthy of the journey.
1: That's right. And it's different because we make things, we make spaces that people inhabit and those in themselves start to influence so it's a it's a a big thing and it's different than starting a law firm where you're making paper and maybe making decisions but at the end of the day what have you actually made and very few people get to usually a a really good invoice yeah it's (laughs) a so i i think that that's To know that that firm, this firm that we're in, you know, has some legs on it that's going to keep going is uh, very satisfying to me.
0: I think that legacy like that is wonderful, especially when it comes from the right values, because every building that gets put on the land intrinsically changes the land. If it's virgin land, even if it's not virgin land, and it changes the land Mm -hmm. and the environment around it, everything shifts at that point and you can't put it back and you can alter it. You can do all sorts of things to it, but you can't, you can't put the land back to what it was. You know, like if there was a habitat corridor that was working there, that moves with it, you know, all these things change, you know, the wind patterns change, the, the way the light falls on the land, everything changes. The more concrete you have down for a driveway or whatever, the less water is going through that part of the ground, you know, all these things. And there's a responsibility in that. And if you're teaching that or following that with your values, that responsibility, then you are leaving the the world with the, the highest intent, or when I say leaving the world, leaving behind, the thing with the highest mm-hmm. intent that you could with the knowledge you had versus the, and sorry for all the developers out here, but, you know, like the, the, let's just bulldoze this, you know, 50 acres flat, as flat as we possibly can and put in retaining walls so every site is flat so that everybody can build a house that's just a project home on a flat piece of ground so that the building cost is you know so much less or whatever it is
1: it can be replicated easily
0: yeah yeah and that to me is I suppose a blot on our landscape and the fact that we're not working with the land we're forcing the land to work mm-hmm. with us yeah so anyway interesting interesting I, I yeah that whole kind of responsibility and then going like you say like 40 years of everything from you know commercial yeah. residential you know like academic and civic all these different pieces of what you've sparked the the uh, construction and creation of long after you know you're all gone there will be still these buildings standing Mm. Mm -hmm. it brings me to a a question i've got other questions i want to go back to yet but mark dithan from Dython Climbs said this to me he said yeah one of his tutors had said to him architecture needs to speak for itself because you're an architect. You don't get to stand outside a building and explain it to everybody all day Mm -hmm. long and people get to observe it and take in what they see. Mm -hmm. That's from observation. And if it's not speaking for itself, then who's it speaking for? Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on that?
1: I... I think that that's very true. It's, it gets tangled up in the argument of who are you making the building for? Mm-hmm. Because that's going Im- to influence. If you're making it for yourself, then maybe you do have to explain it to everybody else. <laughs> but uh, if you're really making it for the people who experience it, either passing by or actually inhabiting it, then it needs to be something that they intuitively understand. And yeah. if it's who they, if if they are the inhabitants, for me, it means that they have to feel like they belong. And our three words that we use all the time in our firm is that is engage, inspire, belong. And that's what we hope. Yeah, that's our that's our aspiration for any of the work that we start to work on. And hopefully when we finish, we can say there that sense of belonging is very, very important to me. And maybe it because the firm and my work came out of residential to begin with. But inspire and engage are also in you. You want that, you want people to intuitively understand and have a response to the work that you've created, that that they recognize it, or that they're it's unexpected and it makes them feel a different way than they had felt before they were in it, or experience light in a different way. So there's different ways that you connect. But it's experiential. And so I think if you have to use words to explain a place, then you've missed it. Now, I do think that there are people that are extremely articulate and they've created a space or they've been in a space and they can, with words, describe it in a way that people say, yes, that's what I felt
0: too. Yes. Mm. I I I find this this part of the subject amazing, and I'm going to come back to it because I I think that there's so much in what the opportunity to build something or have something built and be you know standing in a space is such an honor, and then what's the thinking that drives that opportunity and mm-hmm every building, I believe, should actually get a chance to say something. And mm-hmm. it may be that, you know, like you said, it's about who you're designing it for. You know, I was thinking of when you were saying it. So, you know, the introvert, if it was a residential place, the introvert will have a very different set of, I suppose, brief constraints or expansion might be to the extrovert, you know, like mm. the, their their view of, how they want to feel in the world versus how they, their home will feel. It's got to be a really interesting conversation. Jump right back. I'm going to come back to all this. I'm to jump right back because I want to jump okay. back to you were this little girl who was running around with pigtails or something, somewhere in the <laughs> world, and you're going to tell us yeah. where. And how did you even discover that there was a thing called architecture? What happened?
1: I, I'm i glad that, that you're asking me that question, having listened to some of your other podcasts and being very <laughs> excited by other people answering this. I think that my experience may not be too dissimilar to other people. I wanted to be an architect from the time I was like 10 or 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And I think what gave me the bug was that my parents commissioned a house to be built in a small town in North Texas, Denison. And the architect lived across the street from our site and he had designed every house in that little circle of houses. And our, our building site was the last one. So we were the last tooth in the mouth and it was really exciting because we were living my family was living only a couple blocks away while the house was being oh. designed and so i went almost every day after school i would go and play on the construction site and my sister and i would climb up on beams we i mean we were fearless and it was so exciting because you felt every layer of that construction and we didn't really know how to read architecture drawings, but we saw the drawings and we had heard our parents having conversations with the architect. So we knew what they were hoping for, but we didn't know how to visualize it. And when it came to life, it was so overwhelming to me that this could have been an idea in these three people's heads that they made this idea and then It was there, and I was inside of this idea, and I I I couldn't get over it. And then my parents, who I'm half Canadian, and we uh, live in the summer times on a little on a lake in Canada in a cottage, and they had a cottage designed by an architect and built, and it was a very some you know it's a summer place. It wasn't meant to be winterized. It had cross ventilation, you know, it was one room deep, uh, beautiful eaves, all wood, all, all yes. And it was designed, you know, these are, these are houses that were designed like in 1955, 60. Mm-hmm. And so they were post-war in a time of prosperity when a lot of new building techniques were happening, so they the house in Canada was built on a four foot grid, exactly four feet er, in all directions and so the doors once you got once you got the the structure, the door was what was left over so it was a three foot nine oh, wow. inch door yep. and the windows the same so there was this rhythm that you felt. Through the whole of the house and the rules that, you know, it's a kind of the next generation of Corbusian thought. The rules were all there and they're so obvious, but I didn't understand why it felt so good. Mm. And so it was living in these two places for a lot of my childhood and then, of course, because I was a girl, and I said I wanted to be an architect because I actually had seen what architects do. I'd met architects, and people would say, "Oh, you want to be an interior decorator?" And I would say, "No, I want to be an architect." "Oh, you want to be a landscape architect?" I said, "No, I want to be an architect architect." And it was unfathomable to. A lot of people my parents age that that's what I wanted to do. But my dad would take me to construction sites yeah, and we could yeah. stand at the fence with the hole in it. And we yeah. look at the trucks and he'd say, look at what they're doing. Look at what they have to do before even a foundation goes in. Look at what they have to think about. And, you know, what are they going to do with all the water when it rains? And it it was he was a curious guy and he was had an engineering background and was a problem solver. Yeah. You know, wow. that's what he liked. Three dimensional problem solver. That's what he was made to be as a human being. Mm-hmm. And so that that sense of you can actually make things, he made his first computer out of a kit. You know, it's the, yeah, it's wow. that sort of yeah, we can take the dishwasher apart and fix it. No problem. And so that being around somebody in the in with so much can
0: yeah, and so much can do yeah 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 yeah. I I I really appreciate that part of you know like your dad being such a can do person. One of one of my best friends. So I'm a Kiwi, even though I live in Australia, I'm I'm a New Zealander, and you know New Zealand was a cut off like little nation down the bottom of the world that, but there's a joke in New Zealand that you can do anything with a number eight, with number eight fencing wire because it's possibly all you had. And so you very grow up like can do, you know, I grew up making rock walls with my father and laying concrete for, you know, stairs and stuff like that Mm. around our house. And he's an artist, my dad, but like lots of those things and, you know, he'd model make and things like that. But my, my best buddy, he uh, he grew up. His dad was a photographer, and his mum was actually in real estate. But he will pull anything apart,
1: mm-hmm. anything,
0: and he he goes, you know, because it it's been put together, so it can it can be pulled apart and it can mm-hmm. go back together. He must have been one of those kids that you know you gave him a toy, and mm-hmm. he would rip the thing apart, like he would have pulled it mm-hmm. apart. And then he would have put it back together and then he would have played with it or got bored with it. And that can do attitude and deductive thinking, by the way, he is an industrial engineer by training. Uh But that that can do really teaches people to engage and think deeply and solve problems. You know, I, I, I spent a few years training engineers predominantly at airbus the airplane maker in systematic innovation so i'd run these systematic innovation yeah. workshops and stuff for them and and they would be solving problems that I don't even know what the problems are but i, they, I didn't need to know yeah. the problem i just needed to give the method but what i got is this most incredible respect for engineers especially good ones they are just looking for problems that's that's their whole life they're just looking for something to solve and they never they never get to the point of going it can't be done
1: they get to the
0: point of it's bigger than we can handle or it's you know needs more knowledge but they just don't give up on solving problems Mm
1: -hmm. so when I was Before I got my graduate degree in architecture, I was at Stanford University and they didn't have an accredited architecture program, but they, where you got an architecture degree, but they had, you could, you can, you can major in architecture, but the architecture, the the architecture group was in the engineering school Uh and we got to choose, this is classic in the early 70s, we got to choose whether we'd be in the in the art school or whether we'd be in the engineering school. And we chose to be in the engineering school. And then we chose to be in the mechanical engineering department because it was all run by old NASA guys. Oh, wow. And they believed in conceptual blockbusting. So they, all they did was teach us how to solve problems three-dimensionally. So we had to build our solutions. Like mm-hmm. how do you, power a can of beer up a rope and in you know, those kind of yeah. things. And the, the brilliant fiascos were more fun than the solutions. Right. And when somebody would think, Oh yeah, I can drop an egg off of this tower and it can land without breaking. How do I do that? Um, so they were really great because they, and one one example, and they they taught us how to map out things in a linear fashion. How do you solve problems? And and going and bunny trails are very important. And like now, when we collaborate as architects, a lot of times doing it in person in in group where you can get sillier and sillier, and you get these crazy ideas, and then they make you laugh, and then you go back and look at them, and you think, well, you know. There's a germ <laughs> of something really great here. Let's go back and, and look at that some more. And I'll never forget a test that we had that was about a spaceship. And the I'll make it simple, the the, the, the tiles on the spaceship that were supposed to keep the extreme temperatures from, you know, ruining the inside of the spaceship, um, were falling off. And, and they couldn't figure out how to solve the problem. And this is way simplified, but the point was that you're supposed to go down the path of everything. And then you start looking back at how did we come to make these things? Why did we think that they were important? What are they, are they, you know, the answer was, they're atavistic you don't really need these particular things anymore because we evolved the design to such a point that it's no longer important it's like your seventh finger you know you you, you don't need it anymore but the point was that we had to go all that way to look back and say let's get rid of this this is like this is not a problem it's like it's
0: it was a problem then, but it's no longer a it's problem. Not, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's
1: right. And I think that in architecture, a lot of times we move through a design and then we, if we have the luxury of looking back at it, some of it is an editing process. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of the things that are not contributing to that really powerful idea that we want want to have run the thing. You know, mm. is, is this thing important? You know, was, was this really necessary or was this just an idea that we threw out there and it got glommed on to the project and now let's, let's do the let's, editing. Let's do let's, the weeding of yeah. all that stuff.
0: I think, I think that that's a fascinating story in the sense that if you don't edit, it's kind of like if you had an unedited book, it's kind of like <laughs> if you had an unedited movie it's kind of like the internet where there is so much that you can't, you actually need a search engine to edit for you and they okay. need an algorithm of who you are so that it edits it even yeah. closer to you. You know, like editing mm-hmm. is a skill beyond, you know, you have creation and then you have editing so that it's meaningful for where it belongs in its space and everything else. And it's time, you know, like, As you were saying, telling that story about, you know, this editing down, we don't even need it. I was thinking of a story that we used to use in innovation, which was about a a mother going to cook. I think it was a ham. It might not have been a ham, whatever it was, something, a roast of some kind Mm. in the oven. And she is saying to her daughter, so, you know, we're going to get dad to come in and chop the end of this roast off so that we can put, and then put it in the oven. And anyway, so this was a family tradition. Dad would come and chop the end of the roast off. They'd put it in the oven. They'd bake bake their roast, and then they would eat the roast. And one day her daughter says to her, basically, Mum, why do we chop the end of the roast off? And she said, oh, it's a really good question. My mother always chopped the end of the roast off get grandma on the phone and we'll ask her. And so they ring grandma and grandma says, oh, because my oven was so small and narrow that it would never fit a full roast. Yeah. there You (laughs) have it. Yeah, exactly. It was a, it was something that happened. It was something that, um, made sense for the environment and the space, Mm -hmm. but no longer does because their oven was big enough to carry the roast anyway. You right. Have to throw that piece to the dog anymore. It's yeah. it's just one of those fascinating things that until we go backwards to where it was, then why was it? You know, and mm-hmm. so much gets mm-hmm. carried forward in the haste of create or of you know innovation and creating things. So many yeah. things get carried forward that aren't necessary,
1: or you fall in love with little ideas, and then you know. All of a sudden, you realize you've got a few too many ingredients in your recipe, and I was like, "Okay,
0: oh, um. don't you see it all the time? You see it in so many um. spaces and places that that's mm. what happens." And I think that certainly in architecture, it maybe it takes time and experience to really get reflective on it because you. Sp- Certainly see it. <laughs> you certainly see it when it's done, and that you're just like, really? What's going on here? And it's probably one of the things mm-hmm. that stands good architects out from not so good architects. It, it 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 really stands them apart is their ability to edit, but in every edit the meaning becomes stronger, not mm-hmm not less right. and then we go back to a building speaking for itself yeah it takes you back yeah. to that it's it's the not necessarily the least but it's the number of parts that make up the hole mm. I think what a beautiful journey as well with your dad you know going past construction sites and getting you to look yeah. through the hole and going so what yeah. happens to all that water down there what yeah. happens when yeah. it rains you know yeah. when they pump it to the street where does it go to Uh, And my other question was, is the architect who designed your home when you were a kid and he'd done all those houses in that Mm -hmm. area, was it a bit like Oak Park in in Chicago where Frank designed all the, Frank, like we're on first name basis here, but Frank designed all those houses around that walk behind where his original house was. And you 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 walk around, there's a dozen houses or whatever.
1: There are that's a a very good analogy Donald Mays was the architect's name, and he was he impacted that little town because his how he had he did a couple of schools his houses were very han- they were handsome they were kind of that classic middle america solid you know you felt like ozzy and harriet lived there i mean there was a a great a great feel to to his houses and they still are they have exactly as you were saying earlier they have survived if you were they're desirable People want to live in a Donald Mays house now in 2024 that was built so, in 1960. It's yeah. they, they have, they belong to that place and they have kind of credibility. And you see that perhaps more in small towns, or mm-hmm. there's an architect that who's, I'm missing his name right at the moment, but he, left San Francisco and went to Salt Spring Island on the west coast, off the coast of Vancouver. And he was the only architect on this island in northwest part of our continent. And his work, he did a lot of houses. He did the schools, just the same thing as Donald Mays. And there's a feel to that island that's different because it's got enough of his stuff Still there, still left that it flavors everything. You know, it it flavors your.
0: It sits at DNA. When you go to visit
1: that island, it Mm. has a character about it that is really because it it's fitted so well, and there's enough of it that that's that's a place. And Mm. the same way that you said about Frank, it it is. It's a it even if you don't in Denison live in a dog Mays house you that's part of what makes Denison to me a special place is mm. because there are those houses there and they feel good together
0: I, it, yeah well it's an interesting thing it's like writing a you know say a book or it's got a narrative and the mm-hmm type of people plus the environment shape the narrative and then every house would be a learning of a different set of people and mm-hmm. from that set of people the house would change you know that the principles may stay similar but the house would change to match their mm-hmm. their needs and those things and whether it's on the east or the west side of the street or the north or the south side of the street it would have different orientation notes and yeah, I, I'm gonna go to Denison. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> well, like going to Palm Springs, you know, like it's partly like that, isn't it? It's yeah, going to it, it,
1: yeah, that's an extreme example of it, yeah. but yes. Yeah. And now it's self-perpetuating, right? Yeah, because it's it's precious. People mm-hmm. understand what makes it unique as as a place, and they're you know, they, if they want to live there, that's the ultimate is to live in one of those houses.
0: Mm. Yeah. One of the things that that brings me to, in my thinking is, is so over here, we call them project homes. I'm not sure what you call them there, but like, you know, where you've got basically people rock in and they buy a plan and it's got choose facade, one, two, three, four, whatever it is, you know, and they buy their house off the How the facade looks, you know. It's kind of like meeting somebody and going, "Oh, they're very attractive," and just deciding that they would be a great partner for life, and you forget to actually check out whether they are as attractive externally as they are internally, you know, like or the other way around. Yeah. With that, a, a home or anything that you occupy, whether it be your office, whatever is going to shape your life and it's going to shape your emotions. It's going to shape your interaction with the world around you. Sure. I have this thing that I constantly say with, you know, what we call project homes. Not one of them is designed for the orientation of the block. So they'll flatten the block so they can put the house on it. That's one thing. But then none of it's designed for the orientation And the orientation is the first thing we look at as designers. That's right. That's right. The fundamental thing is is stripped away. Right. Yeah. So so that means that the biggest part of our population lives without, they may fluke it, but without good orientation. mm -hmm. Right. But they'll have a pretty facade. Or not so pretty.
1: So so I remembered the name of the architect in Salt Spring Island, and his name was Hank Schubart, S C H U B R T. And I would think that his work would be beautiful in Australia, portions of Australia and New Zealand. It's, It's very recognizable. They're the houses are all made of wood. They're all internally wood and glass with beautiful overhangs, beautiful cross ventilation. A lot of the things that I was describing in the summer house that my parents built. But they're they're they have he played with the same proportions, but every house was different and he did very tiny ones and much more beautiful big ones. And the reason that I know this is because I I had clients from Texas who bought a Hank Schubert house in Salt Spring and asked me to come help them freshen it up. Yeah. And they got so entranced by their house that they started investigating Other houses, and then they got so entranced by, you know, finding these gems that they decide they're going to write a book about Frank Schubart and and or Hank Schubart and photograph all these houses, and so they, you know, they went up to strangers' doors and knocked on the doors and said, "Do you have the drawings? Or you would you let us interview you? All this." I mean, they found people, quite a number of people, who had been the original owners oh, of the wow. house. I mean, ancient. And, you know, they said, this is this is the shell that I have lived in and I've grown in as like a sea creature. It has influenced me, the, you know, three quarters of my life. And... And this is this is me. Everything in this house is me. And I wake up in the morning and I know where I am and I know where I want to be to experience a certain time of the day. I know what birds are around me. It's like they're they're so it was so ingrained in them that there was almost no division between the house and the person that they, they were just they become be.
0: one. Yeah. Become
1: one? Exactly. And the the stories of the people and and the houses and this guy who moved from northern California because the Vietnam War was on and he didn't want his sons to be sent off to war and so that's how he ended up on this little island in on the northwest coast of our continent and And he made that place unique.
0: How awesome. awesome. Did they write the book?
1: They did. Hey, you and I are going to be together in a month. I'll bring you a copy of it.
0: Oh, you darling. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) no, I will. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) I, I just recently interviewed on the podcast. In fact, we dropped the episode yesterday. First episode yesterday, DC Hillier. Who is mm-hmm. M? Yeah, mid-century modern daily MCM daily, and he wrote yeah, uh, mid-century modern for your home da 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 da, and yeah. he loves that northwest part of the yeah. US at, for its architecture and stuff. And at, I spoke to DC. We were on. We were chatting for over three hours. Mm-hmm. and we just wow. kept going down rabbit holes of different things and so we made two episodes out of it and then there's an hour that we didn't even record that we just these kind of little gems and I go ah oh, you know like those kinds of things and finding not the ones like you know used to be palm springs there's an extreme example of it yes yeah. that Palm Springs has got its multiple styles and it's, you know, it's heroes and it's not, it's less known heroes, but finding these people that actually got these environments where they got enough influence over enough places that it sets a tone, a mood, a feel. This is what creates community. One of the things I love in Austin is, you know, the streets, in Austin where they're kind of like walking streets they're not but they are you know you don't build fences and you put porches to yeah. the front and yeah. everybody sits and chats and yeah I, I remember I was with a friend of mine Clint Garwood and we were walk, he he said come and have a look at this project I'm doing anyway we did and we went and we're looking at this project and with it I said to him, so tell me about this. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm always interested in everything. Tell me about this, you know, area, street, whatever. And he said to me, oh, well, it's got the deep front porch because this is a walking street. And I'm like, huh? And he's like, yeah. in this neighborhood, if you want to build a fence, you're not in this neighborhood. In this neighborhood, no. we all walk. Everybody walks and stops and walks and stops yeah. and walks and stops. And I'm like, Really? And he's like, yeah, mm. this is community. Yeah. And when an architect can get, I imagine, enough influence in one space, they mm. can place make community mm. of like minded people sure. who come together and they're not in each other's pockets, but they've got values mm. that match. Right. And then you feel like your community is your home, not just your home. Right. Mm-hmm. No,
1: I think that's, I think that that's entirely true and not, it's not just, I mean, what we're talking is architecture that's influencing a place of a, a broader place. But that cottage that my parents built is in a bay in Northern Ontario belonging to a much bigger lake. And the lake is now become a place that. Very wealthy people have resort houses and certain orient, you know, like having Western view with the sun that comes down. And, you know, th- there's all these things that when people come and say, oh, I'm going to drop $15 million on a house, I want it on this lake. And I want it to have these characteristics. That particular bay is, it was, it's a family bay. It was a bay that the houses were built little kids to run around and learn how to swim and play with each other and so all along the shoreline you could you and your dog and your 30 best friends that lived in that bay would roam mm-hmm. and then you get in your little tiny tin boat with the you know one and a half horsepower and you'd go around in little circles out in the middle of the bay and and then somebody would have a bonfire at night and we'd all go do marshmallows and you know it's so that it it's a it was a community that then developed patterns. And it's like the patterns of people walking and talking to people that are on their porches because they're sitting on their porches in order to welcome you to the house. Otherwise, they'd be somewhere else, private. But the fact that they have displayed themselves on their porches mean that they're open to conversation. And so this bay has a reputation on this big lake of being a bay where you socialize in your bay at all ages. Most of the other places on this lake are about separation. They're about like, Oh, I don't see any other cottages. Oh, you know, like I, I have the solitude of my place and So it's the same thing as a fence, you know, in this bay that where this where our cottage is. You wouldn't buy in that bay if you wanted privacy, you buy in that bay to watch the dogs and the kids go by and, you know, to share rafts where you swim out. And that's that is the allure is that it comes with 30 of your best friends. You know, they become your best friends, whether you whether you like it or or not.
0: Yes. Yeah, totally. Yes. That's
1: don't buy in there unless that's the kind of
0: your intention, summer that you
1: experience you want to have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I think that that an environment, the fact that it's kind of a beach all the way around, and the houses are in a crescent, all lend itself. The setting lends itself to that kind of a thing, mm-hmm. and then the houses just contributed to it and so it it can those things can happen very organically as well as being designed are clever designed into it
0: yeah i think there's a, yeah there's a real thing there isn't there where if you can design the space with the intent and then i want to say rules which sounds wrong but with the with the rules, essentially, you know, like we don't have fences, we don't have these things. I've got yeah. a friend, and she designs up in Wisconsin and, and does lake houses. And her, what you were telling me yeah. was the same experience of yeah. there's no fence between us and the neighbors, yeah. and you know, the yeah. kids would be ten houses down. Um, sure, you know, like everybody. And again, another thing with that was. Those houses now are often owned by grandparents. And then what happens to the legacy? How do they stay in family? How do they continue Mm -hmm. to be in that neighborhood? And then there is parts of it. She'll say to me, there's parts on some of these lakes where the, 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 grandparents or great grandparents bought the house it got passed to one of the family or one of the family bought it off them and now it's gone to another generation and there'll be three or four houses in a row that are still in that generational yeah. step down yeah and of course you've yeah. not no longer got 10 people you've got 110 yeah. people that yeah, are attached right? to this house
1: yeah and emotionally it, attached Yeah,
0: yeah and and visit at different times and yeah. do things at different yeah. times sure. and it's like yeah. a you know, that that's come from all over America, not just driving distance to be a oh, part of this community.
1: That's, that's our deal too. Mm. The, the cottage mm. that my husband and I live in was my grandparents' cottage. And it's just down the lake from the cottage my parents built. And okay. now we're, we're in fourth generation and
0: awesome.
1: it's not summer unless they experience some portion of it just as I did Yeah, up there.
0: Oh, I love it's it. That's just
1: part of the part of the cycle of the year. That... Yeah,
0: it's. I, I think it's fabulous. I I love that. Like it, it's it's tradition and it's community and it's got a meaning and it's and it's like you, you it, it's got certainty in it. I want to go back to a part that we started talking about earlier, and I, I'm coming back okay. to this. I'm coming back to this. It was about we were talking about old school things, and when I say old um. school. You know, we we started with books because you have a, mm. a an amazing book collection, and books are obviously a huge part of your life. And we started with books, and then we got talking about hand drawing and yeah. the feel of you know pencil on paper, the the smell of mm. pencil, you know, the timber of a of a yeah. pencil, and um, the graphite and the way ideas come and flow, and, you know, it, it's, I think of it as playtime, and, you know, if I could have my life just be the way, I, if, if I was a founder, <laughs> I would just yeah. be playtime the whole time. Yeah, tell me about that sort of journey, and, you know, in a office where you have, or an organization, you know, like, from being in Austin and also being in you know San Antonio and then having your little bird's nests that are mm-hmm. around the country. When your values come from those very real hand-drawn, I suppose, background, what happens in a firm like yours where that gets held and that gets nurtured because it creates some of the culture?
1: it's It's an interesting thing, and that it's a good question. I think for a long time, an, the vast majority of people coming into the firm that are fresh out of college are they they don't draw mm-hmm. they draw on the computer mm-hmm. and so there's this dynamic that happens now there's a lot more collaboration in colleges, so people are having to learn how to make buildings, building designs together, and they're better at the collaboration, but they're not, they don't have that freewheeling, let's pull out a piece of trace paper and go over stuff. And so the, the, there's both those languages that happen. I'm, I'm impacted because I don't draw in Revit. And so when I have to critique something or I have to redline something, I have to do it in hard copy, which is not very ecological, but I need to look at four or five drawings kind of at the same time to understand what's happening with a building. They don't have to do that. On the other hand, if I look at something that's drawn, I know that that's a three foot door without measuring it (laughs) because I know physically that's drawn at quarter scale. I know what all those dimensions are. I don't know what they are on a computer. You know, it's like... So I I don't have the same, it's, we're talking two languages and a lot of times it works great and sometimes
0: not so well. I remember talking to Rick Joy and he said, you know, people are in their computers and they're not working in scale anymore. Right. And they don't put a pencil on a piece of paper and understand that that's, you know, 20 feet or 20 meters, whatever yeah. you work in. Yeah and intrinsically know that a sheet of paper at this size, uh, like I have this thing, I used to say this, it was a few years back. Uh, so we work in what we call A3 or mm. A2 or A1, whatever, but they're just sheet sizes. And an A3 yeah. is is sort of as big as you get off a photocop. Uh, and, and we use A4, which is a, similar to your letter, what you call letter size. Yeah. And yeah. I draw everything by hand and like right down to, All our first conceptuals of floor plans are drawn by hand and to scale, and uh, but that's because of the joy of drawing. Like I go, it could be, it could be fast. It it wouldn't be faster in Revit because there'd be so many layers to it, and there'd be so much more information required. So it gives us a very quick. But I used to say to people, if it goes outside of this page, it's going to cost more than a million dollars to build. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's on a single floor so oh, if it goes outside crazy. of this yeah i know it's yeah. more than a million dollars and yeah. um now i look at it and i could fold the page in quarters and it probably say the same thing <laughs> if it goes outside of this corner here it's more than a million dollars um yeah and if it's going to if i'm going to have to put another page for the next floor well it's going to be more than yeah it's really yeah. interesting because of that scale and intrinsically playing with costings all the time you get a sense of ooh yeah that's going to be pushing this you know you're playing mm-hmm. spatially cost environmental everything at once through the pencil and because I don't do it I don't know how that happens when people are say just operating in a computer, and certainly people in my team that just operate in the computer. I'm very skeptical of their advice when it comes to the other parts of it. You know, yeah. when they're telling me yeah. about how something might feel, I'm going really why? I'm, I'm sitting yeah. right back, and so yeah. meld the melding of the two is like, yeah, I think that's it's fascinating to how does it happen and how does it work? Yeah.
1: So, So, and then I think for us, we might have made that transition more slowly if we hadn't been doing institutional work or mm -hmm. for the city or for, you know, University of Texas, whatever they, they have their own standards and they have their own, the software that they want you to use because then it makes their the, the flow on
0: effect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so we may probably made the transition to AutoCAD and then to Revit to
0: modeling. Yeah.
1: As you know, as a function of just that the scale of the projects we were doing and the clients that we were doing it for, that was the logical step. So, I mean, nothing gets, I will say there is a very small portable drafting board at my desk that travels, you know, with me sometimes. And there's another larger one that sometimes comes out onto people's desks, but it's more, it's probably more of the sketching, Mm. you know, to be able to say, no, this, this is going to fit together like this. But I will, you know, how we communicate to our clients has changed a lot. Mm, mm. And they want. They want to see. A three, a three dimensional image of what do I see when I look out my kitchen from my kitchen window? What what do I feel like when I come into the Texas School for the Deaf building? What does it. You know, they want it, they want it realistic. And for Mm -hmm. so long, I lived with the notion of drawing less and making their imagination work harder. Because if a client feels like they can envision something in their head, it becomes theirs. Mm -hmm. they're they're a piece of the creator mm-hmm. and they're much more compelled to make the vision come true.
0: Because and the, journey's, yeah, the journey's nicer.
1: Yes. So yeah. it's that, and and we're back to that thing about books. People that okay. live in the world of words. If you find the right word, then They'll envision it. You know, you don't have to have paragraphs and paragraphs, mm. but it has to be, you can actually see that light bulb go on when you say the right thing. And I miss that to some extent because our clients are spoon-fed. And I'm not saying ours as in McKinney York's clients, no, no. Just, but just the in world general. out there mm-hmm. wants they they want the visual. They want to see it exactly like it's going to be, which, again, is one of those things where if you have to show them all that too early, you're locked in and then you have to backpedal when you say, I I actually have a better idea about how this could evolve. Then you have to unwind and erase. And if you've never committed completely to how something gets really uh, worked
0: through. I agree so much with this. Like, I go, you get locked into position, and people end up in their, um, I'm trying to think of the right words for it. They end up in the hard line of the process instead of the romance of the process. So they move from right. conceptual to fact and in yeah. conceptual everything's possible and there is dream involved in it and when it gets down right. to fact it's like accounting it's like this yeah. equals this 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 equals this and it, it you know when we were talking about books and you were saying about friends who or that read books and they'll go straight to the last chapter and yeah. I think that not with that's not right or wrong it's just different people and then they'll read the book when architecture becomes it's all 3d visual it's I mm-hmm. think what's happening with ai and you yeah. know that this generation of you know with mid-journey and things like that of drawings and stuff architecture becomes finalized before it's ever finalized and right. it becomes finalized on a on a on a view of something That didn't necessarily have the unfolding and as you said the commitment and the emotion that makes it so intrinsic to them and their ownership of it and their embodiment of it and i've got i've got a great friend in baltimore and he does vr and you know Uh, that's what he does is all his architecture mm -hmm. is on vr and he he does very well and he's highly rated for what he does and i kind of go oh but the journey was at the end before it was at the start it yeah. wasn't but it feels like yeah. that to me I I, yeah. I must certainly say that there is whilst we do you know 3d renderings and all those kinds yeah. of things it's not before we get through a pencil journey yeah that we start to do that and mm-hmm. I i, I I'm interested to know from you when you actually draw so let's just go Resi House because I can Residential House because I can sort of relate to that more. When you draw do you start with a floor plan or do you start with a three-dimensional shape? Where do you start? That,
1: now that that's that's a huge debate among the creatives in our office. I I start with a floor plan and But a lot of people in my firm start with the volume. What is the volume? The
0: mass, yeah. Um,
1: but, but many times before I start with a floor plan, I mean, what I love best is to start with an idea. And I'll give you an example of a church that we're doing called St. Julian's of Norwich. And my partner, Al... York drew this on literally on his on his little journal book. Mm-hmm. He, and he's a he is an excellent he's, he draws beautifully this he's um, like
0: Michael our friend Michael Malone. he can draw.
1: went to the same university. they both oh. went to Auburn and they were all taught to sketch mm-hmm. and they do beautiful, beautiful sketches. Anyway Al drew this picture. And it was, the the site is long and it's on on kind of a hillside with a, a busy road below it and on a corner. And the picture was kind of of this wave and then this thing with this kind of pencil line with three kind of dots in it. I mean, almost a single line drawing. And he said, St. Julian's, this is, this wave represents the passage of our lives. This is, the, you know, this, this community, this spiritual community will carry you through the passage of your life, ups and downs, you know, you go through it. And this vertical is really the foundation of our faith, which is There's death at the bottom, which will someday be your columbarium. It'll be a dark, intense, quiet place. And then in the middle is where we're going to have in the sanctuary a baptismal font, and that's birth. And that will be sunlit and the possibility of life. Like the beginning of life, and then the top is resurrection, and that's the top of this tower and those are and the three into, points. into heaven, you know resurrection yeah. and it was it was literally that it was as simple as that, and it was like, wow, if we can make a campus that does this that that provides this housing for such a, a profound set of, of ideas about mm-hmm. life and community. You know, that's, that's our aspiration, our inspiration and sense of belonging. And.
0: Yeah. I love it.
1: They, they took the journey with us. I mean, it's now the first building is being built and. It was not, there was not a conversation about, is this a traditional church? Is it a modern church? Is it, you know, it was about, we, we want to build a place that, it that celebrates it. this. Yeah. And it was, it was so great. I mean, I wish every project had that, you know, had yeah. an idea that was so resonated so strongly. And, and now it, it sets a bar very high for us. You know, the, we need to do this. It's like, messing
0: around. <laughs> but that's but, even better, isn't it? That, yes, it that's is. That's the real yeah, joy of it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. want the bar set any lower because it, it oh. that bar being set there really brings all of you to it. Like everything, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're yeah. over the line. You're well over the line. Yeah. It's, Yeah. Yeah. And, and
1: and when you have to inevitably have to make decisions based on budget, it's Mm -hmm. easier if you can say, but the idea is still there. The idea is, you know, we're not, we're not cutting the heart out of the idea. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think so much architecture when a budget needs to be cut Sometimes it's the only thing, the thing that gets cut is the only thing that holds the thing together. And then yep. you have to question was that, if that was so easy to get rid of for money, what, you know, did we make,
0: yeah. we made a wrong
1: decision somewhere, right?
0: That's interesting, isn't it? Because yes, if, if, if we lost the essence and the soul of what we were doing instead of the peripherals, we come back to what matters. Yeah. And yeah. Mm. Mm. That's a that's a deeper meaningful piece. Isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's it's not the answer for every every project, but it certainly is something. And, and and the truth is, I get to say this from having the firm for forty years. Some of our best work came at the cutting
0: table. Yeah. You know, the edit. The, the edit. You,
1: when you say it, it's the, it's all of a sudden you did get rid of some, you, you got rid of cost, and when the, when you got rid of that stuff, you did realize it was fat, and you did realize that the yeah. important thing, Sean, more with, with it, it is improved, not yeah. just
0: yeah, innier,
1: but improved.
0: Yeah, I think that that is always really interesting is, you know, which bits you're holding on to for what. And in a journey, you know, you bring baggage with you and you take yeah. baggage home with you, you you know, but oh. is it all good baggage? And part <laughs> of the, you know, we all joke about being, especially in residential marriage counsellors, and, mm-hmm. and we all joke about that, you know, like the tension between even when it's commercial there's a tension between certain parties within it Mm -hmm. and it's way beyond drawing a picture of something or it's in use it's about understanding those personalities and getting them into the process and engaged in the process and Mm -hmm. so that the thing can Mm -hmm. evolve and being able to hear all sides still hold enough line to 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 keep the thing with momentum you know like yeah. you think of the clients that you end up with where they one derails the other and mm-hmm. then the thing loses momentum and purpose and really the joy is gone it's just mm-hmm. a, it, it, you know that that i've i've had projects where that's happened and yeah. i go ah oh, you know like yeah. there was so much potential but it's not going to, it's never going to become, or oh, if it does, it, right. won't, it won't have that soul and essence of it'll be, right. yeah, it'll, it'll be dirtier. <laughs> I shouldn't say dirtier. So but I'm
1: going to tell, tell you a great story about a house that um, Brian um, Carlson, one of the other partners in the firm, and I did many years ago. And as a young couple, and she, Came out of a Hispanic background, and so it was, short, dark hair, voluptuous, an artist, very vocal, and he's a tall, skinny white guy. I mean, like really white guy. Yeah. And went. You know, they met at Yale University. They were both in some choral group, and but. Came from very different backgrounds, and he's very quiet, very introspective. You know, had a, a very had a business helping family foundations nurture their asset. You know, I mean, it's yeah, right. about as diametrically opposed as you could get. Both very lovely people, and they had two teeny children, and we were they were interviewing for architects to do a house that w- that they hope to raise their children in. And she said, you know, I want a space that is full of light with big white walls that I can show my work on, but all my friends work on, you know, I want to give art parties where I hang an exhibit of, you know, people's work that I love and introduce my other friends to you know she had this idea of this house that would be lively with with art and creativity full of and energy
0: and, and movement full of energy and, yeah.
1: all that kind of stuff her her father was a singer and I mean so in and in, in it anyway he liked low dark woody places full of books and they said you know we we were worried um (laughs) you know we're worried that we can't actually do this and um brian i started laughing we said you realize that you're kind of attracted to spaces that are like each other like you're attracted to low dark Uh, sensual spaces and she's attracted to high bright light spaces (laughs) and and they started laughing they said okay well we'll give you a shot and sure enough that I mean they have just left that house and they raised their family there for and they've left actually left town but it was they the dining room was all wood bookshelves. It was a library that you ate in and it had this tree that hung from the ceiling above the dining room table that uh, was an upside down tree that had a little G- a little teeny light that went through it and when you turned off all the uh, lights in the dining room uh, and you sat there it was like having a picnic in, in on the a- woods. Moonlit night. Yeah. it was like it was the weirdest sensation and of course she made the light fixture herself but it was it was one of those things that they are surrounded by all of those books and it was so we, we had so much fun be, because the spaces allowed both of them to be fully themselves and so we all we've always kind of used that story as there's there is common ground you know if people love each other there is common ground and you'll you'll get to something that will make happy
0: yeah that will be special and nurturing and unique and i love yeah. the idea of you know like you said that's like dining in a library that again my daughter paris she would just flip out if she thought she could go and eat all her dinners in the library <laughs> she'd be beside herself in fact i'm going to float the concept with her uh, <laughs> i've did a house recently for a client and she said so i need a kitchen you know this kitchen's going to look over the pool and past the stables and blah, 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 blah. Mm. And then she said, but I also need a, like a, a big pantry. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And she said, I don't think you're going to get me with this. But I need a pantry big enough to dine in. And I said, what? And she said, I need a pantry big enough to dine in. And I said, so you want a dining room that's like a pantry. And so we started calling it the Provador and um, she said yes and she said but it's got a kitchen in it and I said hold on we're putting a kitchen here and we're putting a kitchen here right behind each other yes yeah (laughs) I said how are we going to get light into the center of the house and she said you're the yeah you know you're the designer you work that out yeah I said okay well bring the light in over the top and I said so and she's Fabulously insane, you know, fabulously nutty. I said, so tell me, her name's Heidi, tell me, Heidi, what happens in this providore? And she said, well, I've got all my preserves, I've got my benches, I can cook in here, I can eat in here, and if I like you, you can eat in here. And I'm like, right. So it's like a private dining room
1: uh-huh. in a
0: pantry. And she's like oh, a provador. And she's like, 100%. I said, so what's with the thing out the front? And she said, well, I can cook in there as well. And, you know, I can see across the land and that kind of stuff. But it's not special, like going, being invited into the provador. And I'm like. Okay. Yeah. And so this blending of yeah. two two kitchens, one where you may turn up at her house, yeah. it's not like she's going to have a million visitors either. Yeah. She's not that no. that way inclined, but you turn up. But if you really want her and all her fun and crazy, well, I wouldn't even say craziness, her fun and directness and yeah. the real her, then you're in the providory. And her house has only just been finished. I haven't gone to the provador yet. yet. I, I remember going, one day somebody's going to buy this place, you know, in years to come and go, what the hell happened here? What was this about? And they won't know the story unless we actually right. write it down or document it. And it is documented, right. obviously, in plans. But it's a story that somebody could fall in love with because it's a story sure. of, you know, having your own space and having all that thing to yourself yeah. and having friends who can sit there and have a cup of tea and or whatever, or have a meeting in there. It's not about work. It's just about yeah a little, in, not little, a big enclosed space. It's bigger yeah. than the, of course, it's bigger than the kitchen. And it's not a public it's area. Very it's a private, private area. Yeah.
1: Very private. So yeah. you're on the inside of the onion there. Yeah. Okay, so Fun, huh? uh, I i am going to get back to that for a second because one of the things that we've been doing more and more of in our firm has been working, doing architecture for um, maybe underserved mm-hmm. people, people that haven't had architecture in their lives. And the... Our firm is in East Austin. East Austin is a very, Mm -hmm. now it's getting gentrified, but a modest community. And so we've done work like the African-American Cultural and Heritage Facility, which has a lot of performance spaces in it for the community, and um, a rec center that's in the Hispanic part of our community that didn't have anything. It didn't have an air-conditioned rec center for a long time. And it's really a community space. But the thing that we, I think, probably are most proud of is work for Community First, which is a community, you may have heard of it before, started by a man who decided to create food and give it out out of the back of his truck. And then he eventually has started this community that now is recognized worldwide as being an extraordinary community for unhoused, previously unhoused people, and who have lived pretty rough lives. Mm -hmm. And they have RVs, and they have little uh, modular houses, 200 square feet. And then they asked if the best architects in town. I I say that, you know, maybe I sh- just shouldn't use that word, but well-known architects in town, if we would uh, design houses and we, it was in a competition. I mean, we, it wasn't just like, you can, you know, please do it. It was like, will you submit for this competition and we'll choose a few people to do, design houses. And then we had to be w- paired with, we had to bring along a contractor who's willing to build the house for free. Right. So you designed for free, they built it for free. And then they basically a community first found an underwriter who could put their name on a little teeny sign that says, Mary and Joe, this is, you know, Mary and Joe, Mary and Joe brought you this house kind of thing. And yeah. so in that money, went to the maintenance and support of the built environment. And so they created this fabulous little village. And it looks like you took Santa's bag of little toys and you shook it and they all flew out in all different directions. And and every one of them was unique because they were all designed by architects in... We had the best time designing it. We helped a little bit helping to build it. And um, then we went through the process again on a second phase of work. And the idea was design something that can be built by volunteers, Mm -hmm. which was very different than the first one, which was like a little jewel box and designed to a post occupancy criteria that they had they had spent a lot of time talking to the people that lived in all the various types of houses that they had to say what works what doesn't work about the people that work there like there were all these preconceptions that we brought to the first house that then we had to erase is like don't build it like a little boat with everything built in because a lot of the people um, have mobility issues. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the bed has to be able to be moved around. You don't design storage that you have to get on a ladder to get to. You, you know, it's like all these things that we were trying to maximize every inch of, of our spice. 200 square feet. And in fact, that's, that's not the criteria. And we found that screen porches are critical. We happen to have done that probably by accident Other than anything than the else in the first <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, the bugs. Yeah. But it has to do with this whole thing that we've been talking about on and off through this conversation, which is the screen porch is the place where they meet everybody who walks, who ambles by mm. their little house, which mm. because they're all cattywampus, everybody's little walkways are circuitous and, and if somebody walks by and they see Joe on his screen porch, then they know that they can stop and talk. And if Joe feels like it, he invites them in. And so that became the, the Mm -hmm. place of Mm intersection. You were not invited into the inside of the house, Mm -hmm. which was, a common room, basically, um, unless you were very close to them, you know, or you wanted to have a conversation that you didn't want to have everybody else come yeah, in and absolutely. be part
0: of. Privacy, so there was these yeah.
1: layers in these in these genie spaces. Yeah. There was a distinct layer of what is personal and intimate and private, and what is the communal communally accepting space and And the
0: rules of community you know like they've got their own sort of set of rules and uh, respect and values around that community you know like that like you say if somebody's on their porch then maybe they hello or and they're
1: cooking on their porch they have equipment to make little meals and so it was it it was a great learning experience for us that whole notion of of engagement but then and we thought we were designing for a very specific community and we've been talking a lot about how unique like the dining room inside of the kitchen inside of yeah we thought we were designing for some some very unique part of society these these people have been living in the open and they need, that's almost the most important thing to them was their privacy. Mm-hmm. And so it was an and a sense of safe, being safe, mm-hmm. uh, a psychological sense of feeling safe that they needed this place, the big mm-hmm. community and the little community to give to them. But then that's sort of the universal truth that we got out of that kind of experience. And we've had it again with designing for school for the deaf, using deaf space to to inform um, a lot of what we're doing. We found that everything that we do for people that are hearing impaired are things that we should be doing for all of us. We should have (laughs) sidewalks big enough that we can walk two abreast and talk. You know, it's like we should be able to, you know, kind of see around corners. We should have classrooms where we can see the other people in the classroom at the same time that we see the teacher. Mm-hmm. And it's like all these things that were supposedly unique to a deaf community turn out to be great for all of us. And the same, those lessons that we learned from designing these little houses for People that I mean, the we had a client for the second little house, and she'd never had anything made for her before. She'd never had a scarf made for her before. She never had anything that was hers that was made for her, for her. in her whole yeah. life.
0: Everything else was and, something she was given or had collected. Yeah, exactly. Nothing, nothing about and, her. And
1: and of course had never thought about architecture. I mean, never thought about a building Mm -hmm. never. I mean, and that's not highly unusual. We Mm -hmm. all the time run into people that we think, where, where have you been living all your life that you haven't thought about, you know, you sit across from somebody, it's different than you sit catty corner to them. There's, Mm -hmm. there's things that happen because Mm -hmm. of where you are. And so it's it's that sense of universal mm. designing for human beings there turns out to be truths like that sense of her space in that pantry was how she told people this is where i am safest and most comfortable and i'm most myself you get to see me like
0: this if you earn earn the right the mark yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 so it
0: i i want to come and see that space in austin might be later yeah absolutely next time you're in austin
1: i'll take you yeah you get out of your car and you can't and you walk into that place and i promise you you will feel different yeah it's it's not even being in the buildings it's the sense it's a sense of respect that people have for each other there. And knowing mm. that, mm. you know, that it's hard to work yourself out of living on the street and that everybody has a story, everybody's had trouble. And you feel a great sense of love there, mm. I think.
0: Mm. Well,
1: without it being, without it being expressed. Yes. It's yes. Just yeah. It's
0: just feel, intrinsic. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that's amazing. I've got one last question.
1: Yeah.
0: One last project. I actually, no, I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to do your favorite space in your own home and what emotion evokes. <laughs>
1: Mm. Well, I'm going to say, apropos of our last little comment, my favorite space is my brand newest space in my apartment, which is my closet. In my closet, I designed my closet to be adjustable, so it's on a four-foot grid, surprise surprise and uh it's big i it it came on it came naked into the the being of the apartment and yep. i fitted it out and i fitted it out with the idea that oh well if i needed all hanging clothes at this height i can ship some shelves i can ship some rods i can reconfigure this in lots of different ways depending upon if i give up my shoe fetish or not <laughs> And so one day I've been thinking about. We have this loft space that overlooks the mm-hmm. room with all the books in it. And that's where my husband and I hang out at night. We go up into the loft and we watch TV, and he has this little partner's desk. And I try to work at that desk with him. And there's just not enough room for us to feel comfy doing that so I've I've been a roamer in the house with my stuff taking care of whatever it is on the computer or drawing or whatever and one day I went into the closet I mean like a month ago and I said gosh I could take out this rod get rid of you know 20 percent of my clothes and I could have take this shelf down I can take my little beautiful little folding chair and I can have a whole office in my closet and I can turn sideways and I can see this long beautiful view north view out through the through the bedroom and you know my toilet is right there and just in the next bit I mean like I'm set, and I did it and it was it was like it has no no window in it other than through two the other long rooms view, yeah it's a long view but it it's it's like my inner sanctum you know it's like you have to go through the bedroom through the bathroom to get to this space so you
0: don't share and, this closet with your husband
1: mm-mm, no no this no, is no, your no. closet this is my closet and it's perfect it's like I can have a project going, I can put it down, I can leave it out, you know, I I can leave a mess. Uh-huh. Nobody sees it. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, I go there and I'm not interrupted. There's nothing to distract me. It's, it's phenomenal. And it's really literally,
0: I you know, a taste. four
1: foot section of my closet. And
0: what emotion does that if you had to put that all that feeling into one word, what would you say? You can choose a few words, but one word. I
1: would say it's being sequestered. Hmm. Maybe that's the word,
0: yeah. I, it's a fascinating story. To to, give, to have. I mean,
1: this is our spaces are big in the apartment. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I couldn't have, but oh. somehow finding oh. this little place inside a place is. There's something great about it. Michael Malone will tell you that both of us, one of our heroes, was an architect. In, from West Texas, who moved eventually to Dallas, and Frank Welch, and yep. his work is classy, very classy stuff. Yeah. And when I was when I was first considering moving back to Texas and starting my firm, I went to visit him in Dallas, and and he and I walked through a house that was almost finished construction. And it was in the ilk of a lot of other work of his that I had seen. It was, again, one of these beautiful, high, bright spaces. The flow, just lovely. And then there was this room on the main floor that was dark. I mean, it was, you know, it was like that dining room with all the books. It was it yeah. was the space. And it was it was the opposite of all the other spaces in the house. And I said, this is this is an interesting space. And he said, Do you like it? And he said, and I said, Yes, I feel so safe in it. And he said, I always believe that you have to have a cave for every mountaintop. I mean Whoa. it's like If you don't have that other place, you can't really fully appreciate. You need both Mm -hmm. of those Mm -hmm. things. You wake Mm -hmm. up and you're having this kind of a day. Isn't it great that you have a place that you can fully have that emotion in Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: you feel like you need to hunker down? You have that ability to do that. And you talked about introverted and extroverted, and it's not
0: quite that. It, but, I, yeah. get I get it. I get it. I've just written it down. I totally get it. Like you need a space that is, it, it's one of safety of, and not of your own, vul, of your own yeah. vulnerability. Oh, it would be great to get Brené Brown onto that, wouldn't it? It, mm-hmm. it is one of those things that we all need some of that, you know, and we find places yeah. that do it. There's a there's a book I I think it was James Allen, tiny little book called As a Man Thinketh, and I think it says the line. Some listener can can correct me if I've got it wrong. No man is truly himself unless he is unobserved. That's and that's a great line, isn't it? And that's yeah. that space, and that's almost your closet. It's yeah, almost for your sure. closet. It for is almost. Sure. There's a safety in it. And it's yeah, there's just a safety in it. There's just a your mm-hmm. your yeah. Yeah. I think of window seats can often evoke mm-hmm. that for yeah. people. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Cause it encases you. Yeah. It, the holds window you.
0: Seat it holds you. Yeah. Gives you sec- gives you yeah. view and expanse mm-hmm. and hope and you know like it, it vision, but it also mm-hmm. holds you. And mm-hmm. it, it mentally holds you as well as you know physically yeah. holds you. Yeah. And and you're yeah. perched a little like a cat.
1: Yeah. Just, right.
0: Yeah. Right. Oh. Yeah. Heather, what an incredible conversation. <laughs> this <is really> fun. <laughs> I so love this. I am so looking forward to catching up in it's less than a month.
1: Or oh, it must it be is. about a
0: month. It must be about a month. Yeah, yeah the beginning
1: um, of March.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait. Thank you yeah. so much for all your time.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And your conversation. You oh,
0: brilliant. Absolutely well, brilliant. Very exciting. And
1: this has been really fun for me. And now it, it, it introduced me to your podcast. And now it's like, now I've got it's like, like you said, your daughter likes to get series of books. And now I have
0: more stuff to listen that, to.
1: That, yeah. <laughs> and, um, all kinds of like-minded people from different yeah. places.
0: Well, Friends so. of Michael is a little series I'm doing, so it's going to be a fun yeah. series as it drops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Very, Great. very cool. Thank you so much. Go and enjoy the rest Thank of you. your day.
1: I Take will, care. you too. You do, you're, you've you got a full day ahead of you still.
0: Luckily, I do. <laughs> got a full day of work <laughs> as well. <laughs> hi guys i'm adrian i'm your host of talk design podcast i started this podcast a couple of years ago and in doing it my aim was to talk to amazing design people creative minds people who i could learn from and hopefully you could learn from this was a big part of my whole reasoning for starting the podcast We've cracked over 80 episodes and we've done two homes tour specials for the AIA Austin in Texas, which have been really great fun talking just specifically about houses. We've talked to HGTV stars. We've talked to building designers, interior designers, architects, business coaches, and some inspired characters along the way. People who have captured my imagination and their creative output and gone, huh, these people would bring a story to somebody else and maybe inspire them to go a little further with what they're doing as well. So I wanted to reach out and ask you all for some advice because you are the guys who tune in and listen and subscribe and I really appreciate that. So I want some advice from you. If you guys would be happy to share with me A, what you like best, so that I can better direct what we cover as content. And then also, if there's things you want to solve, what are the three biggest things you would like information on? What are those kind of keys so that I can look and go, okay, let's find somebody who speaks specifically on these points and get some depth of information back to you that would be really useful in your business or in your life or in your home whichever one it would be. So if I could ask you to do that, I would be forever grateful if you would share with me just through the email based on the Talk Design website, which is www.talkdesign.show. If you could just reach out by that email and say to me, hey, this would be a really great subject for me, for my business or for my family or for my home or for the way I want to see life, I would love to be able to support you guys and find those people that we could talk to that would bring that to you. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I so appreciate the fact that you listen to the podcast. It makes it all the more fun when I get messages from you to say, hey, this inspired me. I had somebody who sent me one the other day that said, Your podcast and we were talking on a certain subject it was a game changer for me it was a game changer in how I viewed how I was looking at what I was doing with my design and what was going to come from that so these things make it all the more worthwhile so please if you could tell me top three things that would be useful to you I would love to support you guys in delivering that thank you and thank you for being a listener Take care. Have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are, whatever it is. Cheers, Adrian. Over and out.